Hall family, which gave me instant credibility at Max Drive-In uh, back in the 90s, even at lunchtime. And if you ate at Max during the 90s at lunchtime, you know what I mean. I also lived with Will Huss for a year. That was a transformative experience. <laughs> but I'm thankful for this church. My wife um, spent her teenage years growing up here, grew spiritually here. Uh, my son just graduated from Clemson University, and he has been here as well, a home away from home, and uh, benefited greatly from this body uh, of believers here, and I'm grateful. I also got to cut my teeth uh, teaching an adult Sunday school class. I was an RUF intern back in the mid-90s here, and uh, they asked me to lead an adult uh, Sunday school class on the book of Hebrews, which took place over in what's the fellowship hall now. And so I'm hoping that the statute of limitation of bad teaching has run out after 25 years, and so now I'm here to preach the Word of God to you. Well, we're looking at Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, if you want to go ahead and turn there, verses 1 through 16. As you're turning, we all recognize that the world is divided these days in lots of different ways. Uh, There's very little that unites us, and that has been creeping up on us as a Western society for many generations now, Uh, and the church is called to display a unity in a fragmented world that displays the glory of the Lord and all of His mercy to us. Sin, uh, a world of sin, means that division is easy. Division's easy. I read a Peanuts comic strip uh, one time, and Charlie Brown is on the mound pitching. He's also the manager. And Lucy, who's his nemesis, walks up from the outfield and says, Hey, manager, I've got an idea. Let's sell the team and move to another city. Everybody else is doing it. We'll get a fresh start. And Charlie Brown looks at Lucy and says, I've got a better idea. Why don't we keep the team and just sell you? Division's easy. And in a world of sin, it's extremely easy, and there's a lot of reasons for division in the church. Some are actually necessary to guard the true gospel. There are times where the church has to divide, but also a lot of division is scandalous. It's rooted in sin and selfishness. Now, what we want to talk about here is the unity of the church because it's God's passionate desire. The Lord Jesus prayed for it. He died for it. He continually works for it, as we'll see from Paul's letter here. He loves the unity of the church. Now, let me give you a little caveat. I am not preaching on the unity of the church because I have some insider information about the dynamics of Clemson Presbyterian Church or its leadership or anything like that. I'm preaching on the unity of the church because we've been through a year plus of great upheaval great change, and the church has been tested in lots of ways. Not only that, but you as a congregation have in some sense a little bit of an uncertain future because you're going to be beginning a senior pastor search. When change comes, that means new patterns, new ways of doing things, new thinking. Change equals opinions, and there's lots of opinions in the world and lots of opinions in the church. And so it's important for the church to be prepared for that um, and to be able to face it well. Change is a challenge to unity. So what does Paul say here? Let's read this 
Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we come to you this morning. You have made your church one, and yet our hearts are filled with our own selfishness, our own desires to remake the church in our own image. Lord, we pray for your forgiveness, but we also pray for a, a tender spirit towards your word that it would have its way with us this morning so that we would live as the people of God in unity for your glory. In Jesus we pray. Amen. When I was a student at uh, Covenant Theological Seminary, I worked in the admissions office. I had the task one day of going and picking up from the airport Hudson Amberding. He was on the board of Covenant Seminary at the time, an imposing man. He had been a naval officer back in World War II, commanded men. He had also been the president of Wheaton College. And during his years at Wheaton College, uh, this was in the, the 70s, uh, there was a lot of turmoil, there was a lot of strife, and one day in particular, at a chapel service, he stood before the whole student body and the faculty, and he called forward Michael Dwight. That wasn't his name, but Michael Dwight, please come forward. Michael Dwight embodied the, the angst of the student body, a generation frustrated with the status quo. He called Michael Dwight forward, Michael came forward, and he looked at Michael in front of the whole student body, and he said, Michael Dwight, you're my brother in Christ. I love you, and I refuse to let what other people think, other people think about our differences to come between us. It was a very powerful moment on that campus, because here is the president of the college 
in many ways representing the old guard who is now standing shoulder to shoulder embracing a student who represents frustration with the status quo and showing love for each other. A visible sign that we are brothers in Christ, we are bound together, and we're not going to let anything come between us. There's a unity here that Jesus has established. There are threats to unity, always have been and always will be this side of glory, and it has, unity has two sides to it. First of all, there's the, you might say, the divine side, what God does, because Jesus Christ is the one who has established or created unity in the church. If you look at verse 3, he speaks of the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he goes on to say there is one body, one Spirit. We were called to one hope. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And so Jesus has one body. He has one church. And He's given us one hope, one faith. He's given us one sign of the covenant, baptism. There is one Spirit who dwells within each one of us, and He has reconciled us to one God and Father who is Lord of all. Jesus established the unity of the church. It is unbreakable forever. And yet, the other side of the coin is that our experience of unity in the church can be frustrated, even fractured at times. And therefore, he tells us in verse 1, I therefore are a prisoner for the Lord. Paul's a prisoner writing this, and he's, he's desperately desiring the unity of the church. He's willing to go to prison and even die for it. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Walk in a manner worthy. Now, worthy does not mean that you somehow earn or merit God's grace of the gospel. It means that which is fitting and appropriate. We're to walk in ways that are fitting and appropriate to the unity that Jesus has bought with his own life. What does that mean? It means the church, the unity of the church should reflect the unity of the Godhead. There is one God, one Father, one Lord Jesus Christ, one Spirit, and for all of eternity and unto all of eternity, they are perfectly intertwined in this beautiful love community where the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father and the Spirit perfectly indwells both of them and is sent by them. And see, you and I as the people of God, to walk worthy of the gospel means we walk in a way that's fitting or appropriate to who our God is. He is perfectly in communion with each other. And therefore, we are to be as well. Now, in the Bible, there's external threats to unity, right? There's outside uh, oppression. There's, there's government suppression. There's even things like COVID-19 that sort of hinder the church in some ways. And it's outside forces that threaten how we function on the inside. But in the Bible, you see internal threats to unity all the time. You see factions in the church that Paul writes to. There's big things like false teaching, corrupt leadership. There's also small things y'all are going to be looking at studying uh, uh, Philippians, the end of Philippians. Paul writes to two women. How would you like to have your names in a book of Scripture being pointed out? I entreat Eudiah and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Why? 
because their little squabble could very easily spill over into the rest of the church and become a church-wide fight or division. And so there's threats to internal unity as well, and unity can be strained. Satan would love to get a foothold, and we must not let him. Mass, no mass, elections, what a year, right? And we bring all that into the church with us. Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel unity. So, in Christ, the church is one. And you and I are called to maintain this oneness, this unity that Jesus has established so much so that in verse 3 he says, be eager to do it. In other words, guard it, safe, keep it like you would the greatest treasure of your life. Whatever treasure you have, it might be a a family heirloom, a, a wedding ring, your children. For some of you, it's your phones because when your phone is not with you, you freak out, right? We have treasures that we guard and safe keep. And Paul says, guard unity. That should be at the heart of what you guard because it's at the heart of God. How do we do that? First point is this, if you're keeping score on your outline there, uh, charity nourishes unity. Charity nourishes unity. So there's certainly structural unity. In other words, being citizens of the United States, that binds us together. If you work at the same corporation or you go to the same school, you're on the same sports team or club, that's a structural kind of unity, but it doesn't mean you're unified in your heart. And Paul wants to drive home here where to be unified in our heart, have a, a goodwill towards others. We, we put other people before ourselves. We, we treasure our relationship with them. And we're touching on the very heart of God because this is who He is. This is how He relates to a church of sinners where He wants nothing to come between us and Him so that He's willing to die for us. And he says we're to have the same mentality. And what are some components of this Christian charity? We'll look in verse 2. Paul mentions three things. First, humility. It's a word that means lowliness of mind. It doesn't mean low self-esteem, like you're supposed to think badly about yourself and beat yourself up all the time, but lowliness of mind so that you have a mindset that everything that you have comes from Christ by grace. Everything that you possess that is good has been purchased by the blood of Jesus. It's not yours because somehow you have done something good. It's Christ and He's given it to you. And so you don't have a mindset of self-importance or getting your way, but a sense of humility towards others where you recognize God is doing good things in my brother and my sister. They have experiences that I do not have. They have wisdom that I don't have. And I need what they possess from Christ. So there's a sense of humility. There's also a sense of gentleness, sometimes translated meekness. It's not the absence of power, but rather it's power under control so that you're able to care for people. 
Think of Aslan, if you're familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, right? Aslan is no tame lion. Aslan has massive teeth and great claws, and he could rip the children apart if he wanted to. But it's power under control so that he's able to have fellowship with them, show love towards them, gentleness towards them. Think of God with Moses at the burning bush. The bush is burning, and the fire of God's holiness could consume Moses easily, but it doesn't even consume the bush. There's the holy power of God and the gentleness of God with a sinner like Moses. Or think of Jesus with his disciples. Away from me, for I am a sinful man, Peter says to Jesus. Do not be afraid. Gentleness means that we're not rough with people. And then finally, patience, which Paul qualifies by saying, bearing with one another in love. We all have to put up with or bear with other people, right? And they have to put up or bear with us. We all have idiosyncrasies. We all have quirks, ways that we speak or things that we do, little habits that annoy, and we have to put up with those things and We should put up with those things, and people put up with those things about us, right? You know what it's like. You live in a family, and families annoy each other, especially like on a road trip or something like that where you're in confined quarters. Bear with one another, Paul says, in love. Why? Because I'm a work in progress like you're a work in progress, and both of us have a long way to go. And in grace from Jesus, we're able to be patient with each other. We used to live in Columbia, South Carolina. We had a rare ice storm, brought down a branch from our tree, large branch, and it landed on our white picket fence that had yellow jasmine growing on it. Now, my instinct was, I'm just going to pull this branch out, and it's going to rip apart this yellow jasmine. But something in me said, Sally is not going to like that. And so what I chose to do by the grace of God was simply to slowly untie, you might say, this branch from the yellow jasmine so that I'm deferring to another and in gentleness pulling it apart, patiently, working at it. And that's how we're to treat one another. We're to be humble, gentle, and patient. Now, these are qualities that are Christ by grace. The first half of the book of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, are all about how God in Christ Jesus is reconciling a people from all over the world unto Himself so that He would make them one and give them one name And the qualities that the church possesses, the body of Jesus possesses, are Jesus' qualities. This is His humility. This is His gentleness. This is His patience that we need. And He in His grace by His Spirit imputes that to us or, or infuses that in us over time. And that is what we desperately need. And when that happens, it actually nourishes the unity of the church because people are giving charity towards one another. One of my favorite stories to tell is about a young man by the name of Dan Jackson. 
used to be an RUF campus minister. We took a group of students down to Panama City Beach, Florida, Laguna Beach, Florida, uh, for summer conference. Dan Jackson was one of them. Dan was handsome. He drove a motorcycle. He was good at sports. He was one of our best beach volleyball players. Girls liked Dan. We also had a guy named Jason. Jason was a quadriplegic. His parents allowed us to borrow his van that was set up for him to drive him down to Florida. He had never seen the beach before. Now, to be at the beach as a quadriplegic can be very lonely. You've got hundreds of college students rushing out after lunch to the beach. And then I look over and I see Dan picking Jason up out of his wheelchair and carrying him across the beach. And for hours, Dan would take Jason out into the surf and swim. Yes, he could be with all the girls, but he's with Jason in the surf. And then he would take Jason, he would carry him back across the beach, he'd put him in his wheelchair, and they would go up to his room, and he would very gently and patiently help Jason get cleaned up and put on fresh clothes to go to dinner. It was beautiful. But then what I noticed is that other students began to take notice of what Dan was doing. And they began to not only treat Jason differently, with more interest, but they also started treating each other a little bit differently too. There's, there's this infectious nature of the grace of God in each one of us. It's certainly true that selfishness can be like this infectious poison in the church, but it's also true that charity can be this infectious power in the church to bring healing. So as the people of God begin to live like the Lord Jesus Christ, it transforms a whole community of people. This is who we are to be to each other. Sunday mornings, in your small group, staff meetings, session meetings, when you see somebody on the street, Charity, love, mercy. There's another thing here, and that is the diversity. Diversity nourishes unity. This is the second main point. So we're, we're one people. In some ways, we, we look fairly alike or sometimes talk alike or we maybe come from the similar cultural backgrounds, but there's a lot of diversity in the church, and there should be diversity in the church. And Paul speaks of that in verse 7. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. This is a picture of a, of a Roman emperor who has conquered a people and has now come back to Rome. And the crowd is gathered and they're praising him. And he is throwing out the spoils of war as gifts to the people. Jesus has come to earth. He has conquered as the victorious king. And he has gone back into heaven in glory. And by his spirit, he has distributed gifts to his people. And Paul recognizes the diversity of gifts 
in the offices. Look in verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors and teachers. So Paul is recognizing this diversity of offices for what purpose? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. That word equip there means, um, or at least it was used in ancient literature to talk about the setting of bones or the mending of nets to make them ready for use. Paul saying the, the shepherds, the pastors, teachers, their job, their calling is to equip the saints to be ready for use in the service of God's kingdom, in ministry. To what end? Verse 13, until we all attain the unity of the faith. This is the goal. The unity of the faith. Jesus is so wise. Jesus is so powerful. He could take every individual here with all of our differences, whether they're political, racial, background, viewpoints, how we dress, how we talk, what our gifts are, our talents, our financial resources, He can take every bit of that and weave it together so that actually our diversity becomes a strength of unity. C.S. Lewis writes in an essay on membership. Uh, it's in, it's in the, the book entitled The Weight of Glory, Membership. And he says that the Apostle Paul actually coined this terminology membership in some kind of group when he speaks of the various members of the body being parts of the same body. And he talks about how there are different parts of this one body, and the eye is not the hand, and the the ear is not the toe, and he likens that to a family. And Lewis says, you know, in a family you've got maybe, maybe a father, mother, son, daughter, grandparents, cousins, whatever, but the father is not the daughter. Just like the son is not the mother or the grandfather, they're not interchangeable, in other words. They're unique, distinct individuals, and yet they're part of the same family. And his quote from that is, it's a unity of unlikes. That's what we are, a unity of unlikes. None of us is exactly like the other. And that's a this is a thing that actually can frustrate people in the church because what it requires is that we recognize that unity is not the same thing as uniformity. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. In other words, we don't have to all be identical to be unified. In fact, it's the diversity that God wants to use to strengthen the unity that we have. There should be distinctions about us, but sometimes it makes people a bit anxious when other people have different kind of views, different opinions on how things ought to work. Does that mean we're not unified? No, not necessarily. It actually can be used by His grace to be a strength for the church because there are people who have experiences 
and wisdom and insight and gifts and talents that other people don't have. And when they bring those to bear in the church and there's a spirit of charity there, guess what? All of a sudden, the church becomes even stronger. And when people rally around Jesus together and they bow before Him and worship Him, they put aside their concerns and they say, Jesus is the one that we worship. And so what I want to do is I want to to honor Him by recognizing the gifts He's given you, the experiences He's given you, and the wisdom He's given you. So that when you bring all that into the body of Christ, it actually becomes a strength for all of us. Gospel people are not threatened by the differences and contributions of other people in the church because gospel people are humble and gentle and patient with others willing to listen officers and leaders in churches you're a unity of unlikes unity is extremely important to guard but you also want to prize the unique contributions of everybody else because Christ is at work in them and through them too. We may not agree with each other. That's okay. But we give each other room to express opinions. And when we've expressed our opinions, we allow the group to take that idea and massage it and do something different with it. We don't try to control it, but rather we recognize that other people have opportunities to take what maybe you've contributed, and make it even better. We show respect to each other. We work towards consensus. And we're grateful for what Jesus does in and through other people. Diversity can enhance ministry and strengthen unity. Unity with diversity actually makes the church stronger. Think of a building in an earthquake zone. If it's extremely rigid and inflexible, then more than likely there's either going to be cracks or the whole thing's going to fall down. But more modern buildings are much more flexible and give. I'm not talking about essential matters of the gospel or doctrine. I'm talking about matters indifferent, as John Calvin would say. But when there's differences of opinions of those things, we're able to move and flex and give. And allows us to maintain unity while allowing the diversity to actually strengthen who we are as a church. Well, let me mention the last thing here. We'll finish with this. Maturity nourishes unity. Maturity nourishes unity. So Paul says in verse 13, the unity of the faith And it's accomplished as we grow in maturity, he says, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, Christ is the measure of spiritual maturity. We're always measuring ourselves against Him. We don't measure other people against us. We measure ourselves against Him. He's the measure of spiritual maturity, and the goal is for all of us to grow into Him more to become more like Him by His gospel. He is the standard 
verse 15 says, we speak the truth in love. We grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We are to grow up in Jesus together, and the more each of us as individuals become mature, it actually helps build unity among all of us because we're living like Jesus who prizes the unity of His church. Because then we want to say things like, uh, I, don't, I don't want fragmentation. I don't want division. I don't want anything to come between us. I don't want to be separated in any way. And maturity that is like that looks like the last word of this passage. Love. We receive love from Christ. He demonstrated His love upon the cross. He fills or pours His love into our hearts. And He gives us His love so that we will love Him back and we will love each other. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It is not rude. It is not arrogant. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Right? We're to love one another. That's what maturity looks like. When I was an associate pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, you know, it's a large traditional church, black robes, big organ pipe, and it was a Lord's Supper Sunday. So as the hymn was going on, uh, three of us who are pastors, we stepped off the chancel down to the table in front, and as I was going around this side over here, I noticed a woman coming towards me, and she was crying. And I, th I thought, what, what am I going to do about this right now? I'm going to the Lord's table. But I walked over to her, and in tears, she says, Matt, please forgive me. You preached a sermon two weeks ago, and you said something, and I have been bitter at you ever since. Please forgive me. I had no idea what I said, but I said, I am so, uh, of course I forgive you. Of course I forgive you. And she went back to your seat, and then it was like this uh, lightning bolt that hit me in the heart because I was harboring bitterness at somebody else in the church who had wronged me. And here I was about to walk over to the Lord's table to serve the supper, a picture of unity in the church. And as I was walking with every step, all I could say was, Lord, forgive me. And do you see what happened there? God took her spiritual immaturity and it turned it into gospel dependence, repentance and forgiveness and restoration. And then her spiritual maturity hit me in my spiritual immaturity so that now I am confessing my sin to the Lord and it led to a better relationship with that person. And in that moment, First Presbyterian Church grew in some small way in unity. As God matured several of us together. Maturity, it looks like here, speaking the truth in love. One of the things that I've told my church numerous times is, 
when conflict comes, when you've been wronged, if you will follow Matthew 18 and go to your brother or go to your sister in love and seek restoration, that will bring unity for the church far better than it festering and a root of bitterness growing up and you talking about it with your friends. Maturity looks like following Matthew 18. Maturity looks like leadership exalting everybody else, raising everybody else up. Sort of like the Holy Spirit points attention away from Himself towards Jesus, we as leaders are called to point attention away from ourselves and to exalt what Jesus is doing in and through other people. Maturity looks like service that doesn't seek recognition for itself. It looks like decision-making where you're able to give room to other people to talk. And when there's disunity, you say, you know what, we're going to table this and we're going to pray for a while. Because we don't want to do anything unless we're unified. You see how maturity in the gospel actually feeds and nourishes the kind of unity that Jesus wants. Jesus has all power. He has all authority. And He has established the unity of the church. And He says, now I want you to maintain it. Seek it. Treasure it. Guard it and keep it like you would the greatest treasure that you have. I'll close with this. There's a story of some missionaries um, who 40 years prior, two women went with the Sudan Interior Mission into Sudan, and they saw a number of people converted. They eventually left, came back to the United States. It was the 40th anniversary of their first going. Now, the people, the Christians in Sudan... There was about 13,000 of them at this point who were believers, and they had to flee the persecution in Sudan by going to Ethiopia. And while they were there, it was decided, we're going to bring these two original missionaries back. And so they flew them over. They didn't really know each other. It had been 40 years, right? But the Christians there, now in Ethiopia, wanted to give a gift and the gift that they gave was a carton of eggs, which may not sound like much to us until you realize that how did they get those, that carton of eggs? They didn't go to Ingalls. Each person got one handful of grain per day to eat. Their children were so malnourished they had orange hair. But they would take of that grain and they would feed chickens to get eggs to give a gift to missionaries who gave them the greatest gift, which is the Lord Jesus. And so these missionaries show up, the eggs are presented, and all of a sudden they just gather around and they begin singing, Jesus loves me, this I know. And the missionaries joined in and it was this beautiful moment of unity. Here are these people who had been growing in maturity as believers in Jesus Christ so that they would sacrifice for people they didn't even know. Why? Because they said, you're part of us and we are part of you by the grace of God. It's a beautiful picture. 
And it is our calling to maintain that beautiful picture of the gospel so that a divided world that is angry and hostile and fighting would be absolutely floored to come in here and see this beautiful picture of unity around Jesus. Where we don't all look the same and act the same and talk the same and dress the same. But Jesus binds us together. Friends, as you face the future, whatever that holds, hold on to Christ and do so together. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we do bow before you and we recognize that you have created unity in this church over the decades and you have blessed it and we pray that you would continue, that you would enable each person here to walk by your grace, holding fast to you, to be able to show charity towards one another, prize each other's differences, and grow in the grace of Jesus Christ together. Amen.